so welcome to the next in our series of podcasts. Um, today, uh, I'm Tom Poles. Today, I'm joined by uh, Dave McDermott, who um, is a great friend of mine, uh, one of the other Amigo, your Amigos in our group. Um, and um, David, do you want to introduce us recently? So you might want to, you know, what, what is your current So role? I lead the kidney cancer program at the Dana-Farber Harvard Cancer Center here in Boston, and I'm glad to join you, Dr. Powell's. Well, you're very welcome. Um, Brian Rinney, I think, is going to join us in a minute, I hope, um, which would be great. And he can field some of the questions towards the end of this. What I wanted to do today was I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. The first one um, is um, I wanted to ask you about how you um, decide between ipilimumab and nivolumab in frontline renal cancer um, or axitinib and pembrolizumab. And just to recap the data very quickly, um, Ipinevo, um, the data came out first. I think we've now got sort of a 40-month follow-up data. Um, essentially, the hazard ratio, I think 30 months was 0.66 in the intermediate and poorest group. Um, the CR rate is about 10%. The response rate um, probably doesn't look as good as Axipembro and the PFS doesn't look as good as Axipembro from the back of the room, but it does look like there are long-term durable remissions and clearly they're well tolerated, um, although there's some challenges around immune combination therapy. And then Axipembro, um, hazard ratio of 0.53 for overall survival, but only 12-month follow-up, response rates of 60% and progression-free survival of 15.4 months. So that's hitting response, PFS, and OS. Um, clearly there are issues around, um, although I think it's well tolerated, there are issues around you know, longer term use of therapy. And we haven't seen much quality of life or long-term follow-up data yet. Do you think I've done a disservice to either of those two, um, those two trials? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think that was a fairly balanced summary of where we're at. I think you know, in my opinion, both trials, the results of both trials were better than we expected, um, you know, based on the early phase one and two data with both combinations. So it, it's hard to go wrong with either approach. There's also, as you know, you noted, there's no head-to-head -head data. So you can pretty much justify either approach given the quality of the data sets. I would say, you know, when you're talking to a patient, I think the you know, it, you sort of have to get a sense of what the patient's goal is. And for most patients, um, their goal is long-term survival. Um, and beyond that, um, I think the, the educated, uh, informed patient would like an opportunity at a deep response and the chance to come off treatment. Um, but long-term survival is obviously the key. <clears throat> so right now, in this, you mentioned this in your opening, I think the IPNEVO data set has the advantage of being an earlier data set with more long-term follow-up. And the good news there is the early benefits that we're seeing with the combination seem to be holding up over time, you know, and there's a sense of the curve starting to flatten, um, you know, as we get further out past 30, 36, 42 months, um, which is exciting, I think. You know, it leaves the, the possibility of being able to, you know, have uh, – significant number of patients out and alive at five years, some of whom are actually off treatment. Um, it comes at... I'm going to come to that yes. in a second. I'm going to come to that in a second. So just to just a quick question for you there. Um, so you've got a patient in front of you tomorrow. 
they've got intermediate risk disease, they are fit and well with no contraindications for either approaches. You only have these and none of your trials that you can have. And let's not go off label. And you've got a patient in front of you and he says, doctor, I don't mind which one I have, um, which treatment am I going to have? Just tell me which treatment you're going to select, firstly. And secondly, are there some patients who you would give one treatment to versus another in exactly the same situation? Right. So I think for the typical patient, I would give them ipinevo. And I would explain my reasoning being the, you know, the long-term follow-up is encouraging. The survival um, and complete response rate data is encouraging and uh, seems to be those deep responses seem to be maintained over time, which patients are excited about. And the quality of life um, story is encouraging, meaning most patients spend most of their time on ipinevo on nevo. And PD-1 blockade is more tolerable than VEGF blockade in general. So quality of life is better. Um, so, uh, but I do caveat that with, you know, if you have a severe side effect, which about one in five patients will have a serious side effect, you know, obviously there's a significant risk there. There's also reduction in quality of life and chronic therapy. So there are David, I don't want I don't want this to be a proverbial drive-by shooting, but you may not be aware of this. But I've also invited <laughs> Brian Winnie to this. Uh, to this. To I've been this, listening in. I'm going to uh, jump into your podcast, podcast here. And, uh, and welcome, Brian. Uh, did you hear? I guess you heard what happened there. I'm going to ask you the same question, Brian. So you've got a, a scenario where you've got sure. um, an intermediate risk patient just. What do you, what do you, you have to choose one, what, what, what are you thinking? So what, the way I usually answer that question is when Ipinevo was approved in, uh, I guess, April of last year, two years ago, you know, we were giving that to everybody, you know, anybody without a contraindication, including favorable risk patients for, I think, all the reasons David cites, and I don't disagree with anything he said. We're, gonna, we're not talking about favorable no, risk patients right now. We're going to come, know. we're coming to them in I a know. minute. <laughs> My point was that we were giving that to everybody, you know, even patients where maybe the indication was less strong. When Pembro got approved, which is now not quite a year ago, we switched, you know, I switched personally and institutionally to, to give that to all patients. I totally agree with David's points about durability of response in the Ipinevo data set will always be ahead of the other data sets by definition. And it does appear to be holding up very well and, and flattening curves, et cetera. Here's the one thing I worry about from an academic perspective. There's a group of patients, and I'm not quite sure how big it is, that needs VEGF suppression up front. There's absolutely a group of patients that will die if they don't get VEGF suppression up front. Um, and so I think what we're talking about is trading off some of the early benefits of a VEGF-containing regimen in that subset with some of the late benefits of a CTLA-4-containing regimen in a different subset. So I, I don't think it's right or wrong. And, and as we may get to, I think ultimately we're going to be talking about you know combining all these approaches, hopefully, into tolerable triplets, which might give us the best of both worlds. But, but I've been giving Axie Pembro to answer your question. So, Brian, what you're saying is it's really early control versus the potential for late curable response, and we haven't yet seen that yet, and you're taking that early risk with the PNEVO because you might not be getting the response rates, obviously, lower. David, coming back to you, so how do you come back on that? Because there is, you know, the response rates do from the back of the room look different. Well, I, you know, I think most of the impact of VEGF is in the good risk patients, the tumors that have you know, an angiogenesis signature. Several studies have now shown that, that biology correlates with clinical activity of VEGF. And, and those good risk patients are typically not the patients Brian is talking about. They, by definition, are asymptomatic. 
um, so that you do have time, I think, to offer someone CTLA-4 PD-1 initially. And if they have a clinical deterioration or progression for most of those patients where VEGF is going to have a, the greatest impact, you have chance to give them VEGF if they don't respond. And but but David, you, David, you do accept that the VEGF, that the, so the, the problem with that second line argument, you can switch on to therapy, is we know that not everyone gets there, number one. And then number two is that you do accept that the PFS and response data for Ipinevo doesn't look as good from the back of the room as Axipembro would uh, agree with that. It's a, that is absolutely true. But in a, a patient without symptoms, um, delaying progression is less of an issue. Um, you know, so I, Can I so I think as far as to Brian's point, though, if you're paying attention to your patient and they have clinical deterioration, you should be able to give them VEGF PD-1 if they don't either respond to CTLA-4 PD-1 or, you know, they progress initially. If you now that you have all of these choices available to you. Thanks. David. Can I respond that, to so that? Brian, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I think I, I think there's some confusion that every favorable risk patient is this super indolent asymptomatic patient that you can watch for years. I, I just don't think that's the case. I think there are favorable risk patients who, who you wouldn't know their favorable risk, so to speak, that, that could have clinical symptoms or clinically significant disease. The other thing I'll say is, and David knows this well, is if you look at gene expression data, you know, a large percentage of intermediate and poor risk patients have the angiogenesis high signature. So it's not as segregated as favorable means indolent and angiogenesis driven and intermediate and poor is inflammatory and not angiogenesis driven. Okay, thanks for that, Brian. So let's, we're not going to talk about good risk patients for a bit. Um, what we are going to talk about briefly is, and Brian, this would be to you, um, just tell me a little bit about the toxicity profile associated with immune combination therapy, um, CTA4 PDL1, um, whether or not that needs to be given in a specialist center or whether that can be given more broadly. And also, um, the second question is just talk to me about the issues with chronic VEGF targeted therapies with Axipembro. So, two questions there yep. challenges of immune combination okay. therapy and chronic VEGF targeted therapy. So, I mean, there's a lot there, but just to sort of boil it down. So, you know, what I tell patients is Ipinevo is more upfront inflammatory toxicity, and the first two to three months are going to be the hurdle to get over. And as David alluded to, once you get over that, Nevo maintenance is generally pretty easy. So certainly when we were starting out giving Epinevo, you know, for patients who were um, maybe at a distance and not close to a specialized center, I would have them get induction through us and then you sort of hand them over to get maintenance more locally for convenience. I'm probably a little less stringent about that now because I think there is more experience in the community, but I still generally recommend it because it's only, you know, four or five visits. It's not a big deal, even if they're driving a distance. Your second question was about chronic VEGF toxicity. And, and I would certainly agree that's one of the downsides of the, the VEGF uh, IO regimens is the chronic VEGF suppression and, and toxicity like proteinuria and et cetera, et cetera. I think an open question is how long do you need the VEGF suppression? My sense, and this is just my anecdotal sense, is that it's way more important up front than it is um, at a distance, that it is over time. And that probably depends on the biology of the patient but unfortunately, we would don't you, have studies to, to prove what I just said yet. But I think we need to do those studies. Would, would you accept the quality of life on IP Nevo data 
the epidemiologist looks better and has a strong rationale for being better than that with Axie Pembro. Would you I don't think we can compare those data sets. Number one, Axie Pembro hasn't been, quality of life data hasn't been published yet, but I, I don't know. But in your experience, in your experience, it's like single agent nivolumab 12 months in or Axie Pembro. You know, that, that's the question I've got for you. Because, you know, we're, median PFS is 16 months. 16 months of VEGF targeted therapy. Yeah, I think on balance, I don't think they're that different. Accounting for okay. the upfront induction toxicity. The other question I asked was about the toxicity with the immune combination therapy. Does it need to be given in a specialist center, number one? And number two is there was this long debate about steroid use at the beginning and numbers of 61%, which I don't think were actually accurate as it transpires. Do you think that actually Ipinevo started off because it was first, it had a disadvantage about being new and therefore people were cautious. And that actually has been overplayed. Are you asking me? Yes. Yeah, I think the disadvantage was, like you say, it was sort of the first combo, you know, in renal. Um, Ippy, you know, has a bad reputation, somewhat well-deserved, somewhat maybe not well-deserved. So, yeah, it, it struggled with that. And now the community use of Axie Pembro is, is sort of taking over, as I understand. And I think that's just putting aside the academic arguments. That's just ease of giving the therapy, right? If you're treating a handful of patients, you're going to give therapy the easiest, assuming there's clinical benefit. David appears to have left us briefly. So I'm going to take on the Ipinevo side of this debate. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just, I mean, my impression of this is that actually single-agent nivolumab is pretty easy sure. to give. I don't think um, Ipinevo is particularly as challenging as it was made out to give the first time. And I also think some of the academic institutions, including my own, wanted to make it look a bit exclusive. So, you know, there was always an issue around when these things first come out, trying to make it more difficult than it needs to be um, because, you know, it's new and exclusive and we can do it. So, I mean, my feeling is that both regimes can be given in the community, including Ipinevo. And while the first four cycles of Ipinevo may be cha more challenging than single-agent Nevo, I suspect the first 12 weeks of therapy are more challenging for Ipinevo. Sure. But I suspect the maintenance phase is actually easier for single-agent Nevo than Nevo plus Axie. Um, David, welcome Glad back. Glad to be back. Yeah, you, uh, you missed a, a brief piece around toxicity, but I took the baton for you, and I think actually I was doing extremely well. Um, <laughs> so uh, the last question I want to come to before we move on to good risk disease is around uh, this question about complete response and what does it mean and whether or not it's real. Uh, and David, because you haven't been with us for a bit, I thought perhaps you'd like to kick off because your voice has been nicely rested. <laughs> Well, that's one way to win an argument is just to cut me off the podcast. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I think the complete response or deep response argument is real. I mean, we've seen it for, you know, 30 years with solid tumor immunotherapy. We've seen it with IL-2. We saw it with CTLA-4 alone. We've certainly seen it with PD-1 alone, particularly in sensitive tumors like melanoma, is the deeper response you get the more likely you're going to be alive at five years. And in some of those patients, they can be alive off treatment. Um, so we need to build out that story with PD-1 blockade and kidney cancer, but we're already starting to see that emerge from data sets from ESMO last year, looking at Checkmate 214 and the Keynote 427 study where deep responses tended to be more durable. 
patient's more likely to be alive. Um, so that should be our goal, is to try to create as many deep responses as possible, um, you know, for the, for the reasons I've stated. And now we all have them in our clinics. It's unlike the IL-2 days when no one used to believe me when I used to talk about chance of complete response <laughs> and remission. Now That's everyone true. at least That's has one. True. I didn't right, believe at least everyone now has one patient like that. We should try to make more of them. Um, this, the complete response debate, Brian, complete look at, you presented some data looking at 80% reduction in target lesions. Victor uh, Grumwell presented some ESMO data with Ipinevo looking at the same thing. Those patients seem to do extremely well. Is complete response something that we should park or has it actually got a place where we, where we are? Uh, I'm, you, you're, you cut out for a little bit. Say that question again. So, um, the complete response, we've seen data from Victor mm -hmm. in 214 and from you at ASCO, 80% reduction in target lesions. Those patients seem to do extremely well. What does complete response actually mean and does it have a role in what we're currently doing? So I think what we really want to know, and I think David and I would agree on this, is who are the patients who are going to do really well over time? And, and we might define really well differently, but it certainly means controlled disease, probably disease that's reduced in volume at some distant time point, two, three, four, five years, um, hopefully without toxicity and ideally off therapy. I think we could agree on that rough definition with some modifications. And the question is, what defines those patients? My personal belief is that it's going to be many more than just the resist CR patients. So when we're talking about seven versus 11 or six versus 10 or these sort of silly numbers. Number one, those numbers are too low. If I'm a patient, those numbers seem way too low. And number two, it's, I think it's way more than five to 10% of patients who will be in this category of doing well over time. And the challenge for the field is how do we define that? Is it depth of response? I'm sure that's one component, as David said, but there are probably other components, clinical and or biological components to define who does well over time so that we can stop therapy and limit toxicity, you know, financial and otherwise. So the answer, that was a long answer to your question that I think this argument over resist CRs is very silly. Um, and we really need to get smarter about broadening the definition of, of who does well over time. I'm regretting this next question already um, and try and stay as on piece as you can, please. <laughs> um, good risk disease, David, how are you currently treating good risk disease? What's the, the right treatment for patients with and I'm going to, you know, with classic, you know, good risk disease, um, what, how are you treating them? I don't change my approach for good risk patients. Um, you know, those patients are, by definition, asymptomatic, so they don't need a rapid response that you might see with VEGF blockade. And for the long-term IO endpoints, they do just as well with CTLA-4-PD-1 as the entire group or the intermediate and poor risk group goes, meaning there's just the same number of CRs long-term survival looks good. Those curves look to me like they're going to start crossing over time. You know, there is some benefit. And I don't think, even though it's not FDA approved uh, in that subset, I don't think we should blame patients for BMS's uh, study design. If they had designed it as an intent to treat analysis, it would have been a positive study for the entire group. So that's what I do. I, I wish I hadn't asked you to this now. Um, so that's... Uh, <laughs> unorthodox. Um, Brian, Brian should we, should, do you want to bring, should we go back to reality? Well, you know, I understand what David's saying. And that's why I said at the, the outset, when it was just Ipinevo approved, I was also giving that to favorable risk because it was the only potentially curative therapy. Now we have I other I invited you either. that have VEGF components. And as David himself said, that's a critical component, especially of favorable risk patients. 
So again, I think there's a proportion of patients who need VEGF therapy early or else they're going to die. And I don't agree that you can salvage everybody with VEGF. I just, it just doesn't happen if you look at the numbers, right? The difference in 12-month survival is 7% between Axipembro and Ipinevo with Sutent performing the same identically in both arms. So as a hypothesis, there's at least that percentage of patients that if they don't get VEGF therapy up front, will die. And I think it's probably higher in favorable risk patients. So just for the purposes of the people listening, in good risk patients in the 214 study, Ipinevo from a response perspective and a progression perspective, and indeed from an overall survival perspective, all three of those parameters, sunitinib outperformed Ipinevo. The issue is whether or not there is a tail, a long-term tail to that curve. Um, and I think it's premature um, to do that. And if you look at both the EMA and European and US guidelines, currently um, sunitinib was the recommended drug. And then when Axipembro came that was superseded by Axipembro. Do either of you disagree with what I just, irrespective of what you're doing, do you disagree with what I've just said? No. I, I don't disagree, but I just predict I'm going to be right at the end. Thank the Lord. Let me just add one more thing. I think what's really interesting is that actually, it, a, and again, I just railed against resist CR, but if you look at CR rates, they're almost higher in favorable risk patients for ipinevo than they are in intermediate and poor. So there's clearly well, talk about let's, let me finish. Let me finish. There's clearly <laughs> yeah. a subset of favorable risk patients who are going to do really well with dual immune therapy. Amen. Now, would they good? Would they do better if they if you add also added in a VEGF? We'll find out. But but so there's clearly a, a subset. You know, now we don't know how to identify them, and which is why I don't give that therapy to favorable risk. But two more questions before we stop. Number one, triplet therapy. We've got a study, Cosmic 313, Cabo-Ipinevo um, versus Ipinevo. One would imagine the triplet's going to have a higher response rate and a longer PFS because Axipembro probably would have a lot, would be better there. Is this the right approach, giving everything up front? Is this the, the classic testis cancer lymphoma? Give it all at the beginning, and that's the best way of maximizing outcomes. Or are we putting patients in harm's way? I think the answer is yes. You know, that particular regimen, I think, may have some toxicity challenges, as will any triplet. Um, you know, so my bias would be that a, a less toxic TKI might be a better partner in these triplets or even, a you know, a HIF inhibitor, et cetera. But um, it will get around. So I'm happy with that answer, Brian. I'm happy with that answer. David? Um, I, you know, I hope so. Um, I, the amount of data we had before we launched these trials was pretty limited, in my opinion, and not much focus on kidney cancer. So I hope we don't see a safety signal in the phase three that we didn't see in the phase one. Um, if we don't, I think it could become a new standard, but it's going to be hard to give regardless of whether there's a safety signal or not. Last question, the biomarker selecting patients. We've seen both of you have done some nice biomarker work um, in this area. But let's just start with the pdl one biomarker. Hazard ratio of 0.5 for Ipinevo. You've talked about complete response rates, um, um, high complete response rates in the biomarker positives. Um, why aren't we using that biomarker to help us? Who, who's that for? David, you far away? I mean, I think if you're looking for additional justification to give Ipinevo, if that's what you need, then you could use the marker um, from another tumor type, I guess. But I, I try not to encourage people. It's bad enough encouraging them to do things off-label 
it's hard. I don't encourage people to use assays for other indications to treat kidney cancer patients. So, no, but this was from two one four. So this is the two eight eight biomarker at five percent um, with a hazard ratio of zero point four five in in two one four. Okay, but is that is that assay available in the clinic for kidney cancer patients? Well, I, I'm I'm. Sh- it's the it's the it's the bio, it's the it's the BMS biomarker that's used in lung cancer and for you know for, so it's the BMS biomarker. I know it's not widely used, but that is, I mean that that we have a biomarker with a hazard ratio of less than zero point five that we're choosing not to well, use. If we had that in urethelial cancer, we'd we'd be all over okay, like a rat. But for me, I don't need a reason to give it Benevo. If you do, go ahead, use the marker. If if that. Okay. Okay. I'm fine, David. Fine. Brian, to you. Um, you know, I think your point is a good one. I mean, you know, it, it's it's a biomarker that clearly enriches. You know, I usually describe it as enriching for response. Um, PDL one negatives can do well, so um, it's just not. You know, it's not been enough to get over the clinical line. You know, to to your point, it doesn't matter for David, and it doesn't matter for me because we're each sort of locked into our regimens until there's new data. Um, but could a could a community practitioner use it and say? I'm going to give it Benevo to all the PD-1 positives and Axi Pembro to the negatives. I suppose it hasn't really worked out that way, but but I don't think that's a crazy approach. Um, just really quickly, anything that either of you want to add to what we said so far? Any closing words? I just say, I mean, this is a good problem. We have two really active regimens, and David and I can argue till we're blue in the face and have, but there's just advantages and disadvantages to each. And I think we're headed towards triplets and other combinations um, and hopefully headed towards biomarkers and, and selecting, again, those patients who will do well over time. Um, but, you know, like we said for single agent VEGF, pick a regimen, you know, know how to use it, know how to manage toxicity and, and then use it well. I think that's probably more important than anything. I would add to that in deep responders, we should explore stopping treatment in a deep response so we can stop all both regimens earlier than we do we're probably over treating some of our best patients for sure well look um this podcast started pretty badly <laughs> uh, it, deter- it deteriorated in the middle with the departure <laughs> and the less the less said about the end the better as far as i can see um so uh i hope you uh, i hope you enjoyed this and uh, and, and see you both very soon thank you all very right. much thanks indeed. tom thanks david see you soon Bye-bye. tom thanks